and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Today on Raising Rare, we have the pleasure of talking with Miguel Sancho and Felicia Morton, parents of a child with a rare immunodeficiency known as chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD. Miguel has recently written a book about their story. The title is More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting-Edge Medicine that Cure the Incurable. You'll be able to pick up your copy in early March. Before we get started, Sonneth, how's Raghav doing this week? He's stable. He's awesome. He has been making a lot of progress with his with his therapies. Yesterday, we we learned that he's he's we have this iPad app that he's supposed to touch in and play with. We've been teaching him to touch and play with it, and yesterday he was able to do that for a couple of touches by himself, which is awesome. He was able to move his hand and touch it, so that's fun. Wonderful! It's a start, right? You'll be communicating back and forth on the iPad just like everybody does now. <laughs> um, Eventually, he'll be watching Netflix. Yeah, he'll, you are going to have to watch his account and see what he's watching. So welcome, Miguel and Felicia. Could you tell us a bit about yourselves and, and your story? Uh, sure. Um, I'll start, but of course, uh, Felicia can chime in anytime. The first thing I want to say is just thank you for having us. It's, uh, it's an honor to talk to you and an honor to kind of participate however remotely in your story and your project. I feel that, you know, we're a little bit out of place here because, you know, our son had a very rare disease. We had a very difficult time. But I have to say, compared to what Raghav is going through and all the complications of SSMD, you know, we're kind of the JV team here um, on the on the scale of, of serious illnesses. And so, you know, we're happy to share our story. But Really, we approach the whole thing with immense humility and immense respect for the people who have even more serious conditions. In fact, the book is indeed dedicated to to everyone who's had it tougher. And we know that there's a lot of people who have a, a tougher situation out there. Felicia, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? And, yeah, thanks as well for having us. We're very, very grateful for this opportunity to share our story. And in terms of talking a little bit about ourselves, I am a mother of of two children, and we had a daughter uh, who was four years old and and great. And and, um, lo and behold, when I got pregnant again, I I was overjoyed and and thought this would be wonderful. And I found out he was going to be a boy. And I had been working at that time, uh, starting my own PR business, and everything seemed great. We were living in Manhattan. And then, um, like many families that you've covered uh, in uh, this podcast, our world was turned upside down. We found out uh, Sebastian had a very rare disease, as you had mentioned, CGD. And this book is about how we grappled with that and how we how we made it through. In terms of a little bit more about myself, I, I became a, an advocate in the CGD community 
And through that process, learned a lot about the disease, helped my son as well, and learned so much about what I do to find our way through. And now I'm dedicated to helping others in the CDD as well as rare disease community in any way I can, because there's so many who helped us along the way that if I can pay it back or pay it forward, then uh, I'll be very grateful for that as well. And just very briefly about me, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist by trade. I worked in television uh, news for uh, 20 or so years, and I'd also done some print and some radio. And like Felicia was saying, you know, prior to the diagnosis, we didn't have, you know, it super easy, but we had it pretty easy. We, we had, you know, kind of experienced life in the kind of American dream terms, not meaning that you're not given a lot, but if you work hard and play by the rules and invest in yourself and try to, you know, seize opportunities, you know, you can, you can get by and survive and achieve your dreams. And course, a lot of those assumptions and all, a lot of the, the framework and the foundational assumptions and beliefs of our lives were really severely undercut when we got this diagnosis. And the book is about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is how that really upended our lives and really made it difficult to cope on a lot of levels. I, in particular, struggled with depression and anger and it affected our marriage rather severely. Um, nevertheless, largely because of uh, Felicia's dedication and strength, we were able to make it through and find a, a way to get our son cured and make it to the other side. So that's kind of what the book is about. Great. Thank you for that quick summary. Can you tell us a little bit about Sebastian today? What are his superpowers? Sebastian is a healthy eight and a half year old child today. And I never thought I would actually be saying those words given thinking back to the moment when we got the diagnosis, he has been cured of his disease, meaning he no longer has that disease. He underwent a bone marrow transplant using uh, umbilical cord stem cells. And consequently that involved a very serious, very strong regimen of chemotherapy. And with any patient that's undergone that degree of chemotherapy, you have to be wary of long-term effects and potential organ damage from chemotherapy of that nature. But we haven't had any of those effects so far, knock on wood. And so far, he is a growing and thriving eight-and-a-half-year-old boy who's um, attending third grade whenever school's open and is right now out playing in the snow. Fantastic. Does he remember this at all? And how old is he today? Eight and a half, you said, right? Yeah, he's eight and a half. And he underwent this procedure when he was basically four. And it took about a year. Um, your audience may or may not know a, a lot about bone marrow transplants. And we can talk as much or as little about that as you want. But basically, when you undergo this particular treatment, you have to, you have to block off about a year of your life. Took a couple of months just to get him prepped and healthy enough to go into transplant. Transplant itself involved about two months in the hermetically sealed uh, transplant unit at Duke University Hospital, which is a wonderful place. And then another basically nine months of post-transplant recuperation that involved varying degree of quarantining, intense quarantining, the likes of which 
a lot of people are not familiar with due to COVID, but just you can multiply that times 10. And that's basically how we live for the better part of a year. But yes, he does remember um, it. And I'm happy to say that he remembers it positively. He remembers some of the pain and some of the isolation. But I will say this, and I think Felicia will back me up. You know, the Duke Pediatric Bone Marrow Transplant Unit is a place of intense suffering and intense isolation. It is also a place of intense and extreme love. It is a place where human life is valued and treasured, even if it's most vulnerable, even in its most tenuous states. And it was really a beautiful and transformative experience for all of us, including Sebastian. And I think I can say that with confidence because we went back there a couple years ago for one of their uh, annual fundraising walks, and we visited the unit, and he actually half-jokingly turned to Felicia and said, Mommy, can I have another transplant? So that tells you that, you know, the experience wasn't entirely uh, a nightmare for him. So Felicia, what do you have to say about that? Yes, uh, he does remember it. And he speaks fondly of all of the experiences that he had, because as Miguel said, the, the Duke team was, was very caring, very loving towards him. In fact, we were even invited by one of the nurses to uh, her wedding a couple years later. And so we, we just really felt that we had bonded with them and they did such a good job to make him feel comfortable and, and safe. And, and I also had done a lot of research on what I could do just to support him, uh, checking my energy before I entered the room, making sure I was calm, making sure I could share that, that sense of um, just comfort with him and make sure that he felt that he was not uh, scared and that he could do this. And he, was, he, he had what it took within him to get through this. So we worked a lot on that, he and I, together. Amazing. Kids are so resilient. That at least in the young ages, they, are, they, they see evolved very differently than, than, than we do today. I mean, Raghav goes through so many procedures and it's nowhere close to bone marrow transplants, but comes out of that smiling. And um, he's only getting stronger to deal with more of these procedures in the future. He just never, you know, hates it. It's often said about, and again, I can speak only with some knowledge about the, the transplantation process, that it's harder on the parents than it is on the kid. And that's true to some degree. I think in part because sometimes the kids don't know what they're missing, right? You know, Sebastian, you know, the quarantine life was the only life he'd known more or less since he was born or rather since he was diagnosed, which he was diagnosed at five months. And so he didn't have a full appreciation of what it meant, you know, not to have friends, not to be able to go to school. He did when he was old enough to see his sister going off to school. He was very wistful and was certainly eager to do it as soon as he could. And that was kind of his main goal coming out of transplant was to be able to go to school, to be able to socialize, to be able to have friends. But for good chunks of it, he was just kind of in his own world and just kind of appreciating all the, all the attention and all the love he was getting as much as he was kind of suffering through a lot of the, uh, the very painful aspects of it, including, you know, countless Pokes, you know, I think it was a total of 10 surgeries he had by the time it was all over. Of course, you know, the internal agony of going through 
chemotherapy. So you mentioned, you know, being on the other side, right? Which is at this point, I am on a side where where we are looking forward towards treatments in the future, right? And and you've 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 been in this path, you've you've gotten to the other side of the path. Now now Sebastian is going to school, right? What what does it feel like to be on the other side? Um for for me to know what hope looks like for me. So as parents, what do you what do you all feel today being on the other side? Well, I, I can speak to that. And we are so grateful for every day. It, it never gets old when we think about being on the other side. It imbues our lives with how precious every moment is. Things that we totally took for granted before, things that we probably would have taken for granted now. And one prime example of this is that. When we see Sebastian walking towards school, we, we drop him off and sometimes we, we take him right to the door and sometimes we're in a rush and he'll get out of the car and, and he'll run off with his little backpack behind him and his, and his hat and his gloves that are connected with his little, you know, those, those little things that you can attach the gloves to uh, the, the jacket. And my heart just soars as I, as I watch him running off to school and I will have tears in my eyes. Because I, I think this moment right here is what we dreamed of. It seemed like a miracle to even imagine it uh, when we got this diagnosis and during the days of transplant, when he was so frail and fragile, and there were times we didn't know if he would make it through, just to see him running off to school. I watched that, that little backpack, that little guy, and I just think, okay, you know, Felicia, you did it, and he did it, and we did it, and it's going to be okay. That's amazing. Do you guys do you guys ever take life for granted at this point, having gone through so much? Not really. I mean, you know, I, you know, just just half an hour ago, you know, Sebastian was eating pancakes, and I was just watching him chew and swallow his food. And I just that just watching him being able to do that basic human function. Is something that I'm so grateful for. For you know, I, again, I think back to when he was in the unit, and you know, one of the side effects of chemo condition called mucositis that basically you know um, de- destroys and kills off a lot of the cells and the gums and the mouth, and the tongue, and you can't eat. It's 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 agonizing to eat and to process anything through the digestive system, and you have to be fed through an, an NG tube through your nose. And I remember at those points, I was like saying, oh my gosh, if we could just get back to a stage where he can put food in his mouth and digest it, that will be a, a, an immense uh, step forward. And now he's doing it. And now we see him wolfing down uh, pancakes. So we, we, we definitely just treasure the little things too, definitely. I don't, I don't know if we'll ever take it for granted, but sure, there are moments when you know, life takes us into work and um the day-to-day managing the kids schedules and it you know there there are moments when we get carried away and and uh, but there's always something that takes us back every day many many times a day when we just take a moment take a deep breath miguel talks about how he meditates i talk about prayer and i will just say a prayer of thanks that's amazing that's amazing it's the other side that i've i've, I've dreamt of but i've not uh, experienced so i'm i'm 
really grateful to be able to experience through your experience. I just have to say, I'm blown away by how you're keeping it together. I mean, I think back to when we were in the closest thing to an analogous situation with you, when we were kind of fumbling around for what might be the best path forward. I, w- I don't want to imply that you're fumbling. It seems like you're really on top of it in a way that I certainly wasn't all the time. Felicia was, but you know, not entirely sure which way to go, or what the path forward is, or if there is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And just the way you carry yourself and the way that you are able to you know, talk about the situation and find joy in little moments of progress, it is just really, really inspiring. That's something that people shouldn't take for granted. You know, oftentimes with these stories, you know, you hear, you know, there's a devastating diagnosis and people are, the parents are broken, shattered for a while. And then suddenly they tap into this immense reservoir of kindness and patience and in some cases capital. The way that you're able to do that is just um, really breathtaking. Um, but it's not always the case. I mean, that, that's what I want to, that's what I'm trying to say is that I can tell you from personal experience, I did not handle it as well as you seem to be handling it. And certainly I listened to the episode you had a little while back with Terry, your friend. I mean, it's just really remarkable how you guys are able to find the strength for the journey because it's not always the case, you know, I mean, in, in my situation, you know, like I said, it was, it really, it really screwed me up in a lot of ways. and there were a lot of moments where I didn't comport myself in ways that I would be proud of. So, you know, my, I tip my hat to you, brother. You're, you're really, really remarkable how you're carrying it through. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. Sometimes I just, just feel like I, I don't know what I'm doing. Most of the times I feel like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm heading very fast to a brick wall without noticing that the brick wall is in front of me. And I, 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 don't, I don't know if, I don't know, I don't know when I would break, but, but we've been fortunate enough to, to keep ourselves together. And I think that another big aspect was Raghav's smile. He just always smiles, like every night before he goes to sleep, like when he gets tired and he needs to go to sleep, his cue to us is, is hysteric laughter. Like he just hysterically starts start laughing, laughing. And that's our cue that we have to prepare him uh, to go to bed. So having a kid who smiles all the time i I don't think we can uh we can stay unhappy well i wanted to ask you another question um on the other side how are how are you both enjoying life like are are you are you still having those ptsds of of moments of you know oh, oh shit what's going to happen the next moment you know how how do you recover out of that and and you know you know how 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 do you how do you actually enjoy life at this point because you should i experienced some ptsd uh, when there there's a, a risk that sebastian could be ill or uh something um something could happen uh if he has i'm worried about him having an accident or something like that or getting hurt it's very difficult for me. And I don't know if that's ever something that's going to go away. I, I do try to uh, work through that with therapy. And uh, I do try to be mindful and, and prayerful and just ask for strength and peace to go through those moments. But it is very hard. 
And so that that would that's tough. And that's going to probably be going on for the rest of my life. Um, many parents will say you never fully stop um, you know, having th- these moments with a uh, panic or anxiety with your children. But perhaps for me, it'll be even more magnified. And the same goes for my, you know, my daughter. Um, so there, there are definitely times, but then I'm very proud of myself when I can see them doing things on their own. And I feel like, okay, Felicia, you graduated, you let them walk, you know, outside by themselves to a certain destination. You're letting them ride their bike, you know, walk the dog or whatever it is by themselves. Felicia, good girl, you know, you've done it. So those baby steps for us too, as parents, and, and I, I struggle between being overprotective and, and anxious and just being sort of relaxed and, and not showing that I've got to not show that to them as well, which is, which is really hard. And in terms of um, being on the other side too, COVID happened. And as we all know, that took us all a step back. And, the, and, and then uh, when we first were understanding how this would impact our lives last year in March, all of us, when I, and I just, I'm not just talking about our family, but the whole world, uh, it brought back so many of those memories of having to quarantine, of not knowing what was going to happen next, of, of being so fearful with the unknown that I think I had some PTSD as well, uh, because our, our lives were just beginning. And uh, it was really difficult to see that, again, we were feeling in some ways where we were right back where we started and, and also being worried about what this would mean for Sebastian and if he's going to be at all more susceptible as someone who is a uh, bone marrow transplant survivor. So, so we, um, we had, a, I did at least have, have a lot of fears. Many people in the CGD and rare disease community had so much fear uh, and still have very much fear of, about it. Uh, thankfully, we've learned that uh, a little bit more about how this can impact us. But um, yes, we, we always have to find ways to deal with the anxiety that, that is under the surface and, and find a way to calm ourselves. And both Miguel and I have different ways to do that, but it certainly is, is uh, not easy. It takes effort and energy. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll follow up on that in the sense that, you know, I think one of the uh, myths is that, you know, your state of mind, your happiness is tied always directly and correlates exactly proportionally with the kid's health. In other words, if the, as long as the kid's doing fine, you should be doing fine. If the kid's sick, you know, you're going to be sick too. And certainly the case that if the kid is crisis, it's a stressor. Although I will say that over the course of the, our experience with Sebastian, you know, years and years, we learned to kind of keep it together when he had to go to the hospital and not just totally melt down. It, um, first. So that's a good thing. But the flip side of it is, you know, we talked about, you know, experiencing joy and being grateful for Sebastian's health and all the things he can do now, which is 100% true. That is true. It is also true, however, that chronic intense stress has a neurological impact on the brain. And you know, I mentioned this a little bit in the book. I, I spoke to one of the uh, stress experts at, uh, at Yale. Your brain actually changes over long periods of continued stress. The prefrontal cortex cells shrink. The amygdala grows. These are not good things. And 
even after the stressor is alleviated, in this case, it's health crisis, it takes a long time for the brain to kind of uh, return to its original pre-crisis state. So in order for us to keep it together, you know, again, like Felicia said, we each have our different modalities. You know, I, I will tell you honestly, you know, I need to do uh, some of at least a handful of things, and that includes meditation or some form of either meditation or religious, religious practice, some form of regular exercise, some form of therapy and or medication if need be. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm currently on a low-dose antidepressant, probably will be for long period of my life and a number of other things so you know you have to kind of acknowledge that something has happened and your life isn't the same and if you're going to be kind of the parent the husband the grown-up the professional that you might need to be you don't need to be shy about availing yourself of the various modalities of help that are out there but that said you know when things are good they actually are good and we appreciate it. And we can find all sorts of pleasure in, you know, very simple things. You know, we don't need um, extravagances and luxuries um, to find meaning and happiness in life. Because, um, as we all know, those extravagances and luxuries are, in many ways, a form of false consciousness. You, you bring up a lot about the, the mental health side of this. So what Sebastian had was not contagious, but it affected you. And I think that that's something people may not appreciate until they start feeling it affecting them. And people on the outside, people who, who don't have a rare child or don't have a rare disease themselves, may not understand the stress it puts on everyone else and the health consequences of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about an immune deficiency, and again, I think a lot of people can relate to this with the COVID thing, right? is you don't always see it in front of you right you are you are fighting a war without guns against invisible microbes and there's some people who would say well i don't see them so they're definitely not there and there's other people who say i don't see them so they definitely have to be there and i think in every household in america and, and the world these days these similar conversations and frankly neuroses are are coloring people's uh, actions and decisions and thought processes and relationships. Is given activity safe? Or rather, is it safe enough? Is the risk low enough that we can take him to the playground, even if we have to Clorox wipe the swings and the, uh, and the seesaw? And these are all very personal decisions, right? Ultimately, you can you can listen to the doctors and they can tell you, you know, he can go to the beach as long as he doesn't, you know, play in sandboxes or something. He can, he can walk on the grass as long as he's wearing shoes. But that doesn't necessarily give you the peace of mind to allow that to happen without the inner anxiety kind of taking over. So, yes, uh, even though the disease is not contagious, the fear of the disease certainly is. And I think this is a, a point where maybe we just need to talk a little bit about how uh, CGD what what the risk factors are for CGD2 and how that plays upon our our state of mind because things that were normally safe or benign or even fun became sources of terror for us. So with chronic granulomatous disease, the children, even with um, prophylaxis, the patients rather, 
um, many of them are children, but there are older patients now, thankfully, are uh, even with daily uh, antibiotics and antifungals and uh, gamma interferon, uh, they uh, are susceptible to hay, uh, at, at like a, you know, if they go on a hayride or if they go to a farm, they're susceptible to gardens, they're susceptible to wood chips in a playground. So all of those things, and so many playgrounds have wood chips, that's a way to help break the children's fall. So we used to look at those and say, say great. Now, uh, after, well, after Sebastian was born uh, and, and diagnosed, we looked at them uh, and we would have a panic attack because we were, we were thinking that there is some sort of, um, this, it's called aspergillus fungus, hiding underneath every wood chip. And we would have to say, no, Sebastian, you can't play in that playground. And he, uh, as a young two, two and three-year-old, would not understand why. And so this is how we started to live, where we became fearful of all of these things. And it was very difficult not to allow um, what might, the good thing is caution, but it was very much uh, a challenge to us to not go from caution to terror when we are surrounded by all these things that could potentially kill our son. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.